Good morning, Grace. It is good to be here with you all this morning. Uh, we always say this, but uh, it, this is my community, and so it really is a joy to be able to be here and preach the word with you all. Um, if you would, open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. It's so striking that in these verses we've been studying and that we're going to be studying today, Peter is quickly moving to death. His time on earth is coming to an end. And as a spiritual father, he wants to pass along a message to these people that he cares for so deeply. And what is that message? A timely, important message for the people who, are, uh, who Peter's addressing, but also for us this morning. We live in a culture that is in so um, much need for truth. And so the word that we're going to be in this morning is an especially relevant word. And it's one that I'm excited that I get to bring to you. Once again, you're a community that is dear to me, that I love And so it's an honor to be able to take these words and unpack them together with you. And so let's read these words together. 2 Peter 1, verses 16 through the end of the chapter. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place." Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, what's going on in these verses? What's happening here in 2 Peter in our particular passage? Peter is beginning to make a defense or make an argument. And he's doing this against false teachers. He's making a defense or an argument against false teachers. This may not be super apparent from the actual words that we just read. But the context of 2 Peter and and some of the unique wording here makes this clear. The whole of what's going on with false teachers in 2 Peter is going to be unpacked in the weeks to come as we continue to study 2 Peter. So it's probably not the best use of our time to, to unpack everything about the false teacher's message here. But for our purposes, we need to at least summarize a bit of what's happening. Basically, there's a group of false teachers and they are coming and they are rejecting the, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, the day where Christ will one day return in glory and in fury to judge the living and the dead and to reign. This day, they say, this day is make-believe. It is not going to happen. It's not real. It's a fairy tale. Don't believe it. It's not going to happen. And the reason they say this, the reason they are rejecting the day of the Lord and saying that this will not happen actually flows out of Peter's concerns in chapter one. These false teachers, they're content to live lives of debauchery, lives of sin. They want to indulge the flesh. They want to live hedonistically sinful lifestyles. They want to do what they want. They want to sin. They are not content to add to their faith virtue and virtue knowledge and and knowledge self-control and so on. They're not earnestly seeking to confirm their calling and election. 
No, they are desiring to sin and abound in that sin. The day of the Lord says that Christ will return and he will judge the living and the dead. And this sort of thing does not square with a live-however-you-want philosophy of life. And so they reject the day of the Lord. They would rather not deal with the consequences of the day of the Lord, and so they say it's not going to happen. Over the years, unfortunately, I have sat with friends. I have sat with people that I care about, with, with, with various people, and Every time in these particular situations, these people have come and they have confessed to me that they no longer believe the tenets of Christianity. They no, no longer find it a reasonable faith. And they say this because they, they no longer find the evidence compelling or this over here doesn't seem to make sense anymore. And, and so they'll say that they're ultimately walking away from the faith only to have uh, come out sometime later that there was some serious sin in their life And the reality of the situation was is is that they just preferred their sin over Christianity. For Christianity held them liable for their sin, so it was easier for them to rationalize in their mind walking away from the faith as opposed to living in light of the gospel and who Jesus is and what he has done. And I think we see something similar happening here with the false teachers. Rather than submit to the Lord, rather than recognizing that there is a day of reckoning coming, they just reject it outright. And to this, Peter wants to speak into, and to this, Peter wants to powerfully and emphatically say, no, no. And so he makes a defense. He makes an argument. The day of the Lord is coming. And he does this, he makes this defense, he makes this argument by pointing to two unique pieces of evidence. And these pieces of evidence, these will be the things that really frame our time spent in the word this morning. And so, uh, as we trace Peter's argument, as we trace his defense against these false teachers, and therefore for the day of the Lord, for Christ's return, uh, we're going to see two main points from our text. First, the Bible, the scriptures... The Bible is grounded in space and time. The Bible is grounded in space and time. And so here we're going to see that the events of Scripture, what the Scriptures record, these are factual. These are historical. And so we can trust the Word when it speaks. That's our first point. Second, the Scriptures are completely sure. The scriptures are completely sure. The passage we're in this morning is an incredibly important passage in developing a doctrine of scripture, right understanding of scripture. And so we're gonna camp on this point and seek to glean as much as we can about the word of God. But these will be our two points this morning. Let's pray before we dive in any further. Father, we praise your holy name. And we rejoice that we can gather together this morning around your word and we can hold your word up and we can learn from your word and encounter you, our holy God, for you are a self-revealing, self-disclosing God. And so, Lord, we are humbled by that truth. We are glad in that truth. And we pray that as we gather around your word that you would speak to us powerfully, mightily, through your spirit, applying this word to our hearts. Father, we pray that you would be pleased with this time, and we pray that you would do at this time what you will. We offer it to you as an act of worship. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, once again, our first point this morning is that the scriptures are grounded in time and space. The the scriptures are grounded in time and space, and we see that from the first few verses of our passage, verses 16 through 18. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain." So we see, I think, this point right from the very beginning of our passage. You'll notice that Peter begins his argument, he begins his defense with we. We, not I, but we. This 
This may seem small, but this is actually significant. This is a really important little word in this section. He does not begin with I, he begins with we. Why is this important? Peter isn't merely speaking of himself in this section. He isn't merely speaking of who he is and what he's experienced. He is speaking of the collective apostolic witness in this passage of Scripture. He's speaking as one of those who was with Jesus from the beginning, one of those who observed the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and even the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father. It's not merely Peter speaking. He is speaking as one of the apostles, one who was with Jesus. And so he begins his defense this way, and he wants us to know what the apostles did not do. What did the apostles not do? They, they did not speak of the return of Christ as myth, according to verse 16. In other words, they didn't make up a story about Christ's return. They weren't speaking in metaphor when they declared that Christ would return bodily. They weren't dealing in fairy tale or make-believe. So here we see uh, a, a central part of the false teacher's message. They accused the uh, the apostles, when they proclaimed that Christ would return, they said that they were, they were speaking in myth. This is something that we might be familiar with to some degree. Greek mythology is the idea here. The idea is a fable. It's a story that does not accord with history. It's not grounded in truth. And so these false teachers, they said, that's what you're doing when you proclaim that Christ will, will return one day. You know, a, a fable, a myth, it might be something that, that has some, some good principles. It might point to some sort of eternally, uh, mysteriously true thing. But the actual tenets, the actual uh, dealings are not grounded in fact. And Peter wants to address this and say, no, that is not what we were dealing with. That was not what we were doing when we proclaimed to you that Christ would return. We were not dealing with myth. And so what evidence does Peter give to say that's not what we were doing? He points to the transfiguration. The transfiguration. Verse 17, that's what he's referring to in verse 17. For when, we received, for when he received honor and glory from the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is the transfiguration. This incredible event recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke where Jesus took some of his, uh, his closest disciples and he took them up onto a mountain. And on that mountain, Jesus was transfigured. He was changed. His clothes were changed. His face was changed and he shined with the glory of God. He wasn't like Moses who had a similar experience who reflected the glory of God on a mountain. No, Jesus shined as the source of the glory of God for he is God. And so what we see here is Jesus, he himself was shining. He was the glorious one. There's so much that can be said about the transfiguration. The transfiguration is an incredible event. It's incredibly important as Jesus moves along in his ministry. But Peter wants us to draw us to this unveiling of Christ's glory. For in the unveiling of his glory, we see a promise, a pointer to when Christ will one day return in glory. And so the glory that was revealed at the Mount of Transfiguration, it prefigures when Christ will, will, uh, will come in all of his glory. It's a pointer. It's, it's saying this is something that will come. It's a piece of evidence that makes the future coming of Christ sure. And so when we see the transfiguration, when, when Peter tells us about this day, when he says that this is an important event, there's uh, God's glory is displayed, uh, God declared something about Jesus, he tells us something very important that his whole argument hinges on in verse 16. Verse 16, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then verse 18, we ourselves heard the voice born from heaven. We heard the voice born from heaven. And so in the transfiguration, when Jesus' appearance was changed, when his face shined, when God declared, this is my beloved son, when he declared that, that Jesus was greater than the prophets, 
Peter and the apostles were there. They heard with their ears. They saw with their eyes. They witnessed this event. When I was looking to attend seminary several years back, I had no idea what I was doing. I had zero idea what I was doing. I didn't know which schools were good. I didn't know which schools were terrible. I didn't know which schools were dangerous. And so I did my best to cast my net wide and pray that God would be gracious in sending me to a, to a good place. And so to manage this, I, I went and visited several different schools. And, and it was such a sweet experience because I got to go to a lot of different places and see where these schools were located and see what they offered, how they were different from one another, what their campuses were like. And it really was a, a great experience. And in the midst of that, I went to one school and this one school uh, set me up with a guide and, and we toured the campus. And this guide might have been the coolest person that I've ever met in my life. And I imagine they put people like him in these roles for a reason, but he was seriously so cool. His glasses were cool. His hair was cool. His clothes were cool. The way he talked and the way he walked were cool. He had this kind of like, Ah, I'm really knowledgeable sort of vibe. And all the while I'm walking around thinking, if I go to this school, I can be like him. And not only that, but walking around this campus, it was a beautiful campus, an amazing campus. And everything just seemed to be clicking and my heart was just saying, yes, this is the sort of place that you should go. And then I asked him a question. What does this school think about the Bible? And he used some phrases and some words that I didn't understand at that time. And so I asked him for clarification. And he stepped back and he got really quiet and he got really thoughtful. He said, you know, did Jesus land on this side of the lake or this side of the lake? I don't know. Did Jesus even land on the lake? I don't know. Who knows? but is that what's important? Is it important if Jesus really landed on the lake or is what important the message? I ended up not going to that school based on that comment. Also because it was a really ridiculously expensive school, but mostly because of that comment. You see, these sorts of things, they, they sound spiritual, they sound intellectual. They even sound humble. How can we know? We live 2,000 years after the events of Jesus' life. How can we know if he landed on this side of the lake or this side of the lake? Surely it's not important. What, what's surely important is the actual message, right? And we can go on and on. This, is, this sort of thing runs rampant in our culture. It runs rampant even in our seminaries. How can we know? The question isn't how can we know? The question is, is this true? Is this sort of thinking true? Consider what Paul says about the truthfulness of Scripture as he addresses the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have no hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Does it matter to Paul that the events of Scripture were factual and true? Or can we say it doesn't matter? What's, what's important is the message. No. No, Paul says that if the resurrection isn't in a factual historical event, if it didn't really happen, then we have no hope. 
We have no hope, no hope of eternal life. We are still in our sin, and we are therefore still under the penalty of our sin. We are to be a people most pitied if the resurrection didn't actually happen in history. No, the, scripture, the scriptures, the Bible, they're rooted in time and space. They correspond with factual and historical events. These events were witnessed by the apostles and they were recorded so that we might be a people who know God, who know his character, who know his will, who know his plan for redemption, and who know God as our father, who relate to him as children, who have been brought into the fold through Christ. Consider how uh, John says this in 1 John 1, 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have touched with our hands. Verse three, that which we have seen and that which we have heard, we proclaim to you. The first thing we see in our passage this morning is that the apostles, they were eyewitnesses. They were eyewitnesses. They saw the life ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And what they saw, what they heard, what they witnessed, they recorded and they proclaimed to us. And we now have those events in the sure word of God. They saw the transfiguration. They saw the transfiguration. Just as uh, the birth of my son has a time, date, and location associated with it, November 21st, 3.54 a.m., Kaiser off of Kramer. Just as that has a time, date, and a location associated with it, there's a time, date, and location associated with the transfiguration. And just as there is a time, date, and location associated with the transfiguration, there is a time, date, and location associated with the future coming of Christ. This is going to happen. It is a certain future historical event. This will happen, and Peter wants us to know it. He wants us to know that Jesus is coming back. And we are to live in light of that future reality. We're to live in light of it. And so, as 1 Peter 1 says, we are to, a to be a people who make every effort to add to our faith virtue and knowledge and self-control. Because if we do these things, we'll never fail. To earnestly seek to confirm our calling and election to store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust will not destroy. Why? Because Jesus is coming back and it actually matters that we do this stuff. So, when we go to the word, when we open our Bibles, when we read in the morning, when we seek to study it, to, when we seek to, to live in this word, we can know that we are not going to myth. We are not going to fairy tale. We're not going to metaphor and make believe. No, we are going to historical fact. We're going to truth. We're going to something not rooted in make believe, but history. And so this is our, our first point. This is our first point of evidence. The day of the Lord is coming. We can know that because the apostles were witnesses to the transfiguration. The transfiguration points to the sure coming of Christ. First piece of evidence. But Peter wants to make sure that we get this. And he wants to make sure that our, that our, our faith rests on something more than what some might consider subjective experience. And so this leads to our second point. Our second point, the scriptures are completely sure. The scriptures are completely sure. Verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So in these verses, we see the prophetic word take center stage. And so the first thing we probably need to do is clarify what is the prophetic word. Uh, is this talking about scripture, all of scripture, New Testament, Old Testament, prophecy? What exactly is Peter speaking of here? I think Peter is probably speaking specifically of Old Testament prophecy, and not just any prophecy, but prophecy that is dealing with the day of the Lord, with the return of, uh, of God to make all things right and to establish his kingdom, his kingdom on this earth. 
He's probably referring to passages like Psalm 2 that actually speak of Christ, a messianic psalm anticipating Christ. Psalm 2 says this, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So he's referring to these particular pieces of scripture because he's making a point about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming. And so he's pointing to specific parts of scripture that that deal with the day of the Lord coming. But I think it's fair, even though that prophecy uh, about the day of the Lord is in view here, that we kind of back up and and apply these things to all of Scripture. I think it's fair for us to apply uh, what we're seeing here to all of Scripture and to develop or see timeless truths about Scripture in these passages. And so what does Peter say about the prophetic word and therefore all of Scripture? Verse 19, he says that in it, in Scripture, we have a more fully confirmed word, a more fully confirmed word. This is a very important phrase. It means probably one of two things. First, it might mean that the validity of existing prophecy, things like Psalm 2, the validity of existing prophecy is strengthened by the apostles witnessing what they did at the transfiguration. We can know that Psalm 2 is true because we saw what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. So all that stuff in the Old Testament about Christ's return, about uh, prophecy of the day of the Lord, all of that stuff I can believe more truly now because of what was witnessed here. So this is one option. It's a good option. Uh, Lots of strong evidence for this option. The second one, though, is that it might mean that the prophetic words of things like Psalm 2, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and so on, These are words that are even more sure, even more sure than the incredible experiences of the apostles at the transfiguration. They're a more sure word than what the apostles experienced at the Mount of Transfiguration. So I think this option highlights the centrality of Scripture, the reliability of Scripture. So once again, both of these options are great options, They both have strong evidence. I am inclined to go with that latter option, that scripture is a more sure, more confirmed word, even than the apostles' experiences. As great as an evidence as this was, the apostles seeing with their own eyes, hearing with their own ears, as great as that was, the sure word of God is a better witness. It is a more sure word. I think what's happening here is that Peter is dealing with an objection that is so common to man, so common to us in this room. Well, Peter, you might have had this incredible experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. You might have seen Christ's appearance change and and his face shine with the glory of God. And that sounds great, but I wasn't there. I didn't see that. And so I can't have my my faith strengthened. I can't believe in the same way that you do because I wasn't able to experience all of that stuff. Does that sound familiar to you at all? I think that that's something that we often feel. I can't have my faith strengthened. I can't believe in the way that you do because I haven't had an incredible personal experience with the Lord. I don't have an incredible testimony where God delivered me out of these crazy sins and I saw his power on display. You know, I, I haven't had that, that check show up in the time of need and so I haven't been blessed in that way and I haven't had that experience to know that God's faithful in that way. You know, I was in the bathroom when the, the miracle happened on the, witness, or on the, uh, the mission trip and so I wasn't able to, to have my faith strengthened in that moment. You know, we're people who, who long for these personal, miraculous experiences with God. We desire to see God show up in these mighty ways to, to demonstrate things to us, to reveal his will. And when those don't happen, we end up discouraged. We can't have our faith strengthened. And the flip side of this can actually be true too because we've had experiences, some of us, that actually seem to say that God is not faithful, that he's not good. 
Uh, bad things have happened to us. Or bad things have happened to people that we know. Tragedy happens. And so our personal experience seemed to be saying something negative about God even. And to this, to this, Peter wants to speak. No, no, you do not need some incredible personal experience to know Christ. You do not need a personal experience like these that I'm describing to know Christ and to enjoy Christ. You don't need a burning bush. You don't need letters written in the sky. You have God's very sure words spoken to you. Consider how Jesus deals with this sort of thing as he gives a parable in Luke 16. And he said to them, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In these verses, Jesus tells a parable of a rich man who has died and gone to Hades, and he does not want his family to experience his same fate. And so he says, send somebody from heaven, send this particular poor man from heaven to go and warn my family. And how does Abraham respond to this request? If they do not hear and listen to Moses and the prophets and they will not even listen to a ghost from heaven. If the word of God isn't going to change them, then nothing will. What we see in Luke 16, what we see here in 2 Peter is what's called the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture simply says that God's word is enough. It's enough. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that God's word is enough to leave us equipped and complete. It's enough for us to be saved, for us to know Christ, for the gospel message is contained. It's enough for us to live lives pleasing to God. God's word is enough Kevin DeYoung defines sufficiency this way. The scriptures contain everything we need for knowledge of salvation and godly living. We don't need any new revelation from heaven. Westminster Catechism says the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from scripture. Or in a more pithy way, the spoken word artist propaganda says that we hold in our hands God's diary and all the while we look around looking for signs. And so Peter, here he wants us to know, to know, even if we haven't beheld the glory of God in the face of Christ literally like he has, we behold the glory of God in the face of Christ every time we open up the scriptures and read. We have a more confirmed word in the scriptures, a sure word in the scriptures. And so we are to go to this word. We can be sure, therefore, of God's future plans because he tells us his future plans in the scriptures. We can know that Christ is indeed coming back because the scriptures tell us. And so Peter gives us these two pieces of evidence. The, the events of scripture are rooted in time and space, are grounded in time and space. And the prophetic word, the scriptures are a more confirmed word, a more sure word, so we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt what is coming. But, there's more that we can unpack about this word. Peter gives us these two pieces of evidence, but, but he wants to keep going and wants to continue to, to have us wrestle with the nature of the scriptures. And so let's, let's move quickly through the rest of this passage and consider a few more things about the sure word of God from these verses. I'm gonna see three things uh, from here on out. First, the Bible 
is the word of God. The Bible is the word of God. Verses 20 and 21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So here we see the rationale for what we just said. God's word is enough. It's enough. It's sufficient. It's a more sure word. Why? Why? Because no prophecy of Scripture was ever produced by the will of man, but by God. In other words, Scripture, all of Scripture, every word of Scripture is God's word. These words are not simply Peter's words. They're not simply Paul's words. They're not the prophets of the Old Testament's words. They are God's words, all of them. You might hear people seek to pit the Bible against itself, seek to pit Peter against Jesus or Jesus against Paul or Peter against Paul or the Old Testament against the New Testament. And that sort of thinking does not square with what we see here in 2 Peter 1. No, there is no such thing as red letter Christianity according to the Bible. For all of these words are God's words. Every single one of them, regardless of who the author is. And so therefore, these words, all of these words are backed by the character of God. They're backed by his perfect power, his wisdom, his loving kindness, his authority, and so on. And this means at least two things. At least two things. It means that God's word is true. It means God's word is true. God's word is truth. Another way to put this is God's word is inerrant. Inerrant, it is without error in its original manuscripts. Whatever it affirms is true. God's word is truth. Second, it means that God's word is authoritative. God's word is authoritative. It is the final word. We are not people who sit above the scriptures. Rather, we sit under the authority of scriptures for the scriptures come from God. The, the awesome, holy, uh, wonderful God. The God who has all authority in heaven on earth. He speaks to us and therefore his word is authoritative. And if his word is, uh, is true and, it, and if it is authoritative, that authoritative, then it is to be believed and it is to be obeyed. This is God's word. This might be the least controversial thing in the world to you. We've talked about the word of God from the stage several times this morning. You've heard this phrase, the word of God, throughout your life. And so it may uh, just be absolutely normal and common for you to think in this way. But I so want you to know that this is not assumed for many in the world. In fact, this is attacked by many in this world. In fact, even though we often assume this, this is something that our flesh seeks to undermine regularly, to undermine our, uh, our trust in the scriptures, the author of scripture, and so on. One uh, incredibly influential and famous pastor recently preached uh, a sermon series, and one of those sermons in that series uh, was entitled, The Bible Told Me So. And in this, uh, in this sermon, he said that we Christians, we mature adult Christians, we build our theology in error on a children's song. The children's song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's what's written on the wall in the office over here that our youth uh, keep in mind every time they study the word of God. He says, because we believe that Jesus loves us based on the Bible alone, we err. We build our faith on that and we err. No, instead, we're to be people who recognize that our faith is, is grounded in historical reality, is grounded in evidence, it's grounded in all these other things, which is somewhat ironic because all these things are founded, found in Scripture. So it's actually saying the same thing in some ways. But about this, he challenges that Christianity does not exist because of the Bible any more than you exist because of your birth certificate. Your birth certificate documents something that happened. In other words, 
what we see in the Bible is merely documentation. It's documenting historical fact. It's documenting what has happened in the past. Many have rightly scoured this statement, I believe, as an attempt to liberate Jesus from the Bible. People like this pastor, uh, and I don't think this is uh, true all the time, but in this particular moment, I think this pastor is doing this. He wants to say that the Bible is not the word of God, but the word about God. It's not the word of God, but the word about God. One article I read uh, addressing this particular discussion quoted B.B. Warfield, who's one of the great defenders of the word of God. He said, the scriptures are a book which may be frankly appealed to at any point with the assurance that whatever it may be found to say, that is the word of God. This is what we're seeing in our passage. So we're seeing in our passage. You don't liberate Jesus from the Bible. No, the Bible is comprised of people who do not say something on their own or interpret prophecy on their own. No, they spoke truly and with authority and they spoke from God. This is the word of God. So, so far this morning we see that the word is grounded in time and space. We see that the word is a more confirmed, more sure word, even than our experiences. We see that, that the Bible is in fact the word of God, and now we want to see more. From the same verses, the Bible is full of personality. The Bible is full of personality. We, once again, uh, from verses 20 and 21, we see this point. These verses uh, are incredibly important in us understanding how we have received the word, how we've received the word of God, how it came to be. Uh, the scriptures came to be through a thing B.B. Warfield called concursus. Concursus. It's a big theological word. It's not a word we should be scared of. Uh, concursus means that both God and man contributed to the final scriptures. Both God and man contributed to the finalized scriptures. People say that this cannot be the word of God. It cannot be the word of God because human authors wrote this word. And therefore it must be littered with error, undermining the fact that this is the word of God. It can't be the word of God. Other people will err too far to the other side and say, well, the only way this could be the word of God is if God dictates the word as if he was dictating to a puppet or to a scribe. And so there's no personality here. It's just God speaking in this kind of way that, that robs the scriptures of personality. But that seems to be off because there's evidence in the scriptures that, 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 uh, that this, these are from human authors. Concursus, though, shows us that God didn't merely dictate words to authors, although he did at times in the Old Testament. He didn't merely dictate words to authors. He carried them along by the Spirit. And they wrote according to their personality, according to their style, according to their giftings, according to where they grew up, according to if they were a Jew or a Gentile, according to what their family was like, and so on. God carried them along by the Spirit. And, they, and he, they said what he wanted them to say, and they did so according to who they were. The wording in this passage is a wording similar to the idea of a sailboat. So it's similar to a sailboat. In the sailboat, you, you hoist the sails, and the wind catches the sailboat, and then it carries the boat along. And so the idea of inspiration uh, of what we see in this passage is, is to that of a sailboat. God, by his spirit, carries these authors along as wind carries along a sailboat. Others have, have seen uh, it to be more helpful to think of this idea being like a ferry. I, I find this to be really helpful to think of this like a ferry. Um, Ray Lynn and I often go down to Newport Beach. That's where she's from. And there's this one place on Fridays we go and get dollar tacos. It's on the Balboa Peninsula. And then we like to go over to Balboa Island. In order to do that, you take a ferry. And so last week we, we did this. We drove our red Honda Pilot onto the ferry. We parked and behind us pulled several other cars. Uh, some bikes rode on. Some people walked on. And, and on that ferry was represented an incredible amount of diversity and personality. And while we were on the ferry, we were able to move around and mingle about and enjoy all that was going on on the ferry. But the thing is, 
even though there was incredible diversity represented, even though personality was represented on the ferry, we couldn't go up to the, author, to the captain and say, hey, is it okay if we, we go two miles down and dock there? Can we take this thing out to sea? No, the captain was going to get us to where we were going to go, regardless of what we said about it, regardless of what we asked him. He was going to land us on the other side at the same place that he always lands us because that's what fairies do. And we see something very similar happening here. Even though there's diversity, even though there's personality in the scriptures, God is moving us along and he's getting us to where we are supposed to be. God carried along the authors of scripture by the spirit. We don't want to push any of these analogies too far because we can err, but we want to recognize the point. God's word is full of personality because God, our glorious God, our awesome God, the preeminent God, the one who created the heavens and the earth, he has stooped. He has stooped. He has humbled himself and he has used twisted reeds like us to uh, reveal his character, his will, his plan of redemption and how we might know him and enjoy him forever. And we can wonder at this. We can marvel at this. We can worship God in light of this for this is the sort of God he is. He is a self-disclosing, self-revealing sort of God. And so God's word is full of personality even as it is God's word. We're gonna move to a final image that uh, we see here in this passage. As we do, we're also gonna use this to close our time in the word this morning and also to offer a point of application this morning. So we see that God's word is grounded in time and space. Uh, It is a more confirmed word. Uh, It is the word of God and it is a word full of personality. But now we see that this word is a word that guides us. The Bible guides us. We're going to backtrack. Verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What's the image we see here? We've already looked at this passage and we've seen that God's word is a more sure word than experience, but here we see something more. God's word is a lamp shining in a dark place. It's a lamp shining in a dark place. This is actually the image for our Second Peter series. It's a lamp in the darkness. Remember the context here. Peter is speaking of the day of the Lord. Christ is coming back and he wants us to live in light of that day. But now, until that day, we live in darkness. We live in darkness. And so feel that image. We're in the darkness. That's not a safe place to be. That's not a a cozy place to be. No, danger surrounds us. It envelops us. It is crouching to destroy us. We are not sure-footed, for we do not see where we step. And what does God leave us with in the darkness? Does God leave us on our own? Does he leave us to wander about in the darkness that we might fall, that we might be hurt, that that something might capture us? No, he leaves us with a lamp. What are we to do in the darkness? Verse 19 tells us we pay attention. We pay attention to the sure word of God, which is a lamp shining in a dark place. We pay attention to this lamp. We live in this word. We hold this word before us. We don't neglect this word and go wandering around in the darkness without light. No, we cling tightly to our lamp and we let it illuminate our path. We let it shine brightly so that we can be sure-footed at all times. Notice verse 19 at the end. We do this for a period of time. We do this for a period of time. We pay attention to this lamp, to the word until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. There is coming a day when we will no longer be in darkness in need of this lamp in the same way. The dawn is coming. It is coming. Why? Because the lamp, the word of God, it has a purpose. It has a goal to lead us to Christ to illuminate our need for Christ, to illuminate Christ as the solution to our need and to illuminate the centrality and glory of Christ. 
The Bible tells us that we are sinners by nature and by choice. We have willfully rebelled against the glorious and awesome holy God. We have separated ourselves from this God. We've lived in human rebellion and we are therefore under the penalty of sin, deserving of God's just wrath. But the Bible also tells us of God's glorious plan of redemption, that God in love looked upon us in our hopeless and sinful state and he sent Jesus to come and to walk on this earth, to go to the cross in our place, to bear the wrath of God, to die, to be raised again, that whosoever believes in him should have everlasting life and live with him and enjoy him forever. The Bible tells us all of this. And it is telling us that one day, this full picture, this full redemptive purpose, this full restoration will come to completion when Christ returns. The goal of the word will be complete and the day will dawn. This is a future historical reality. And when this happens, the morning star will rise in our hearts. This is a reference to Jesus. The goal of the word will be accomplished. We will have Jesus in all of his glory before us. We will see him. We will know him. We will behold him. He will be ours and we will be his forever. Until that day, until that day of light, we pay attention to this prophetic word. We pay attention to this prophetic word, the sure word, the word of God, a word full of personality, truth, and authority. We live in it. We cling to it. We believe it. We obey it. We orient our lives around it. We let it light our path. Let's pray that the Lord would help us to this end. Father, we praise your holy name that you are a God who stoops and reveals your holy character, who reveals your plan of redemption, who reveals your marvelous love for us, how we might know and enjoy you through Christ forever. And so, Father, help us to be undone with your loving kindness in giving us your word. Lord, help us to be a people who pay attention who recognize that we are in darkness. We are waiting that final day when Christ will return. Lord, help us to live in this darkness well. Help us to be guided by your word. Help us to live in light of your gospel. Lord, may you work wonderfully in us and through us to bless this world and to bring glory to your son. But Lord, we cannot do this on our own. We need you. We need you, Lord. Help us by your spirit. We pray that you would go with us now and that you would be continually applying this word that we might live to the praise of your glorious grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.